did the math the other week. Over the last 17, I think now 18 weeks, I'm, because we had a surprising week. Over the last 18 weeks, I've taught five times, um, which I profusely thanked our elder team who have taught several times throughout the midst of that. Uh, I've thanked the Midtown team, uh, or the, uh, the Northwest team who we shared an Advent series with, because we have always desired for this to be a church and a family and people that are growing together in Christ's likeness together, and that always means that we are not here to primarily hear from a certain style of teaching or a certain perspective, but we're here to recognize that each and every one of us is filled with the Imago Dei, and we see parts of God, and we bring out parts of who He is in beautiful and powerful ways. And that is most exhibited, at least from the sense of a teaching ministry, of when you hear from a plethora of voices, from a different angles and perspectives of who God is and who he's imaged different people to be and things that they have been brought out in the scriptures. And so it's not nearly as wide and, and as it, I hope it someday is, but man, it, it's just been really encouraging for me to get to hear week in and week out from our other elders, to get to hear from other voices and to have that continued to be a part of our culture that's expanding. And also, a huge, huge honoring to Dante Cook, who, yes, let's, uh, please, give me, um, you're like, we don't even know why we're clapping for him yet. Let me tell you why you're clapping for him. You're clapping for him because over the last two weeks, Dante, in the midst of doing a football camp, in the midst of Christmas, in the midst of other job, unexpectedly took the last two weeks of teaching dates and set up our first John series for us with two weeks. Uh, the first week, uh, me and my family, would, just like everyone, had COVID over Christmas and could not be here. Uh, and then we were out of town. Uh, we got to go to Jamaica, which was an amazing opportunity for us and, our, uh, and my wife. And not, not my kids. It's not an opportunity for them. They stayed home. Um, but uh, that's how it should be. Uh, and, and thank you. Um, and so we... Uh, but yeah, and then uh, Dante taking that week as well uh, as, yeah, other people were meant to teach, but again, just people kept being like, well, I can't show up on Sunday. So uh, Dante took both those weeks. He has laid a powerful and, and strong foundation for John that I'm excited to get to build on today. So uh, with that, if you'd flip open First John, you're going to be chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as you flip there, let me re-emphasize something that Dante has already emphasized well for two weeks now, but it's something that we probably cannot frame up enough in our mind. John is writing this book. The disciple and then apostle of John writes 1 John, and he's very explicit as, why he, as to why he does so. He's writing this so that we may know Jesus, know Jesus as he did. And if you think about what that is to know him as he did, John was, again, a disciple of Jesus. He was the youngest disciple, most likely. He was 15, 16. And he spent his formative years walking alongside a man who not only was his teacher, but became one of his best friends. John was one of the, within the disciples, was within the inner three of just those who, we don't know the reason why, but Jesus just regularly brought three alongside him 
in some of the most intimate moments, including the moment where he transfigures and shows the glory of God through him and his earthly state. Um, and when he raises Jairus' daughter, one of his resurrection stories, only the inner three are with him. Uh, when he prays at the garden, and he goes further, to pray and to sweat blood and to experience the stress of what was coming to him, he brings the three with him. And John was one of those three. He was one of Jesus' best friends. As a 15-year-old kid, he was walking alongside and getting to know his Lord and was being shaped by him. And now John is an old man, as he writes this book, 80, 90 years old. And he's thinking back 70 years. And he's thinking about his friend. He's thinking about things that he taught him, the way that he shaped him. And he wants us in this book, he wants those who he's writing to, people who he loves dearly, who he calls little children, and then through them, and then through just now, us now having it, all those who would come after them, he wants them to know that when you know Jesus, like know Jesus, it's going to be like what it was like for John to walk alongside him. It's going to be like what it was like to be in his presence. I mean, John hugged Jesus. At the Last Supper, it says that John leaned back against Jesus and talked with him and rested upon his, his chest. John knew what it was like to smell and to be held and to be hugged and to be comforted by Jesus. And he says, hey, the same way that I knew him, you can know him. Because when Jesus went away, he said, hey, it's a really good thing that I'm going. Because when I go away, yes, I won't be walking alongside you. Yes, I won't be there to hold you. I won't be there to comfort you in that same physical, tangible way. But I will send my spirit and I will live within you so that you will be overflowing with my presence. That you won't be able to just be with me if I'm there presently, but you will have me growing within you. And he wants us to have that fellowship. So let's, as we set this up, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. He wants to talk to us about, hey, how do you know if you have this fellowship? In fact, that's where he starts in verse 3. It says this, 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way, in the same way in which he walked. So this is the million-dollar question that many of us ask multiple times throughout our lives, which is, how do I know that I am in Christ? How do I know that I am dwelt with the Holy Spirit? How do I know that when I said, Jesus, I put my sin and my righteousness and my holiness on your cross and I accept yours, how do I know it took? Because there's lots of days, heck, there's lots of seasons for me where it's just like, it doesn't feel like it took the same way that it did in other seasons. It doesn't feel like the emotions are all of a sudden stirring the same way they were. It doesn't feel like my righteousness is all of a sudden, the desire to to be Christ-like is just oozing out of me. It doesn't feel like I'm here in what it seems like John is saying and keeping perfectly all the commandments. And so I start to ask myself and I start to think myself, 
if there's something in me that was supposed to happen, maybe the, flip, the switch didn't flip or maybe it unflipped. And I'm guessing you have had that experience too. In fact, I'm wondering if a number of you are there right now. In which case, let me take down a little bit behind the wording of what's going on here as when John is saying, because we always ask that question, man, and, and we know the answer that, like, even John, like, he, he's not writing to discourage us that we don't have Christ. He's actually writing us to encourage us that we do, but yet he then sets us up with, and how do we know that if we know, have come to know him? That we keep his commandments, and we walk as he walked. And that word keep, I think, just hangs over us like an anvil over our heads that just eventually is going to drop when we feel like we fail. But the word keep in translations, and we know, I mean, English translations, by the way, are amazing of the scriptures. A lot of times people like try to like almost like weird in this way, like, yeah, this word doesn't quite get it in English, which what they're really saying, I mean, if you read through, like if you can read through the Greek and read through the Hebrew and then read through the English, you can read English translations and feel confident that you have the message and the words of Jesus. But what you do get when you start comparing different translations or start comparing different languages or, again, even start comparing different perspectives of different teachers and different thinkers of the words of God and how God has revealed himself to them, here's what you get. Different shades and nuances. Different flavors start to come out. And this word keep, we think of it as like you keep the commandments and do everything perfectly. But the word keep is... It's the same word that you use to guard a prisoner, to stare at, to obsess at. It's like we were in Acts earlier this year, or last year, and there's a scene in which the apostles are, have the, Paul is there, and all of a sudden the doors all of a sudden open, and a guard wakes up, and he thinks all the prisoners have left, so he goes to kill himself, because it was a death sentence. If you were in charge to keep a criminal or somebody who was uh, imprisoned under the state of Rome, if, you got, if they got away from you, your life would be taken in punishment. And so he goes to kill himself, and Paul says, don't, we're all still here. It's that same concept of guarding over and obsessing as if your life depends on it. Now, here's what that isn't. Here's what keep all the commandments isn't. It's not do it perfectly. It's not you never fail. It's not, there's sometimes I want to do it more than I'm able to do it. I mean, we just read, Dante just taught. If you say you have no sin, his truth is not in you. If you say that you, if you don't confess regularly, that you fail to obey perfectly, then that's apart from who you are and knowing who you are in reality of who God is. But to keep to desire after, to stare at, to obsess after, to keep trying, to be worried about. I mean, so many times people are just like, man, I just don't know if I'm actually filled with the Holy Spirit because I just think about how much I sin. And I want to say, the very fact that you think about how much you sin is actually evidence that you are filled with Him. That you do know Him. That you are in Christ, in relationship with with the way that John was. I mean, John was a 15-year-old kid who at one point just is walking with Jesus and says, hey, here's some people who are not following you. Should we call down fire and kill them? And Jesus is like, not the way we're going today. And, and John says, 
I, as that angry and bitter 15-year-old punk kid, felt deeply loved by Jesus, knows what it's like, and I want you to know what it's like too. And so I want you to know, here's how you know you obsess over his commandments. And then you also think like, okay, the obsessing over the commandments, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the 600 plus commandments of the Old Testament and the Torah? Are we talking about the elevation of all those commandments in the Sermon on the Mount? Hey, don't just be angry or don't murder, but don't be angry. Don't just not commit adultery, but don't lust. Is it obeying every one of those commandments? And actually, John is going to take it zoomed in much further than that. Uh, for all of us who are just like, man, like, I, I sometimes can't keep all the ideas and, you know, tax, tactics and, and strategies to do a certain task in my mind. I need you to make it simple for me. John in 1 John desires to make it simple for you. In fact, he's going to zero it in on simply one commandment in two forms. And probably just by the way I word it, some of you are tricking, uh, tripping your mind as to what that commandment is. Uh, let's go... Verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, what John here is he's starting to use this language of like, hey, I'm giving you not a new commandment but an old commandment, but at the same time it's a new commandment. You know he's starting to reflect back on the moment that the night before his friend died. And in fact, he writes about this in the Gospel of John in John 13. In fact, if you would keep a finger in First John or keep your history saved in First John and flip over to John 13, it's impactful enough to, to read this moment. 13, verse 33, in a subtitled section by the translators that is called A New Commandment. 33, it says this, Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's like, hey, listen up right now, because I'm about ready to leave you, and as somebody has, gets to the end of their life and is saying their last words, you really start to take notice. And he said, hey, here's some of my last words, and what I really want to emphasize to you, that this is one of the last things I'm going to tell you, so hold on to this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John is reflecting back and he says, hey, do you want to know if you are in relationship with Jesus? Do you want to know if you know him like I know him? Do you want to know if he's growing in you and indwelling in you and the spirit is moving in you? Here's how you know. Obsess over, stare at, do as if your life depended on this one idea. Think about how can I love my brothers and my sisters? How can I show them, not just love in a, oh, I'm thinking thoughts about you, but love them as Jesus loved them and that he gave everything for them. This, again, 
uh, go back, going back to flipping back to First John, verse eight. He says, "At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining." He says, "That new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you." If this feels heavy to you, if you're just like, man, keeping all the keep, you know, like keeping all the commandments is one thing, but keeping even obsessing over loving one another feels heavy to you, heavy to me. Here's what we hold on to. The fact is, and we're going to talk about this in First John four. We love because he loved us. He said it was true in him, and now it's becoming true in you, because here's the reality about love. It is the most powerful force in the universe, in which you cannot experience it and go away unchanged. You don't, I mean, you definitely do need scripture to reflect on this, but yet you find this all over our world and culture. Take the Princess Bride. The whole movie, by the way, is trying to tell you what it's trying to set up. It's about true love. The concept of true love is what resonates throughout the entire film. And what does it found itself on as a picture of true love? A picture of a servant who's serving a girl. And this girl hates him. She despises him. She makes his life miserable. She regularly is an enemy towards him. And he, because it says he loves her, serves her and responds time after time with every audacious and ridiculous commandment of her as you wish. And she continues to use her authority to abuse him and he continues to serve and love and lay down his life for her. So much so that the power of that love cannot leave her unchanged. But over time, her enemy, her enmity, her hatred softens. And she becomes not an enemy of him anymore. Not only a friend, but one who receives and is changed by his love. And that's what John's writing to you. He's saying, hey, this is what it's like to know him. That you realize he has sacrificed all things for me. And in Romans 5, 8, one of the most powerful verses of my life, the one that just has continues to reap continual fruit in me, is that not while I was chasing after him, not while I was trying to love Jesus, not while I was trying to do everything good, but while I was still an enemy, Christ died for me. While you were still an enemy, Christ died for you. And John is saying, hey, if you let that hit you, and I know some days it's there and some days it's not. I know some days it's easy, some days it's not. Some days it's amazing and it just brings out new fruit. And some days it's old news. But for the days where it can simply produce fruit, and it's always producing fruit, even the days where it is feeling like old news, that not just moment by moment, but over the years, continuing to reflect on that will produce not only love, Jesus' love produces love in you. I would ask you to think about a question that Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, was famous for asking, in which he regularly would ask, who loved you into loving? Because he recognized there was something that you, as you loved other people, or as you had the capacity to love other people, he said it always came from the fact that somebody loved you sacrificially first. 
that love is the most powerful form of any sense of substance or concept or tangible or intangible reality in that it has to produce itself in that who receives it or they reject it fully. You cannot sit near it. You either have to accept it or you have to reject it fully. Those are your two options. In fact, John is going to make, uh, make sense of, or make uh, that in his point. In fact, let's keep reading here. Verse 8, we read, but let's get the second part of it again. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We're using this language of darkness and light, and in it we're sometimes thinking of it more like the Star Wars, like dark side and light and whatnot. And like, you know, you're either like, you know, doing some, you know, dark stuff or you're doing some light and beautiful stuff. But sometimes he's just taking the metaphor and using it in just the way that you think of light and dark in a more simple way. And that light exposes reality and you see things for how they really are. He said, when you're loved by Jesus, when you are loved by others, and when you do that, it produces in you darkness passing away and light being able to shine and you're able to just see things the way that they really are. Which is why he just got done saying, if you're walking with him, you regularly see that he is light and you look at yourself and you realize, I'm still so much broken and sinful and needing of redemption. It's true of you, it's true of me, it's true of all of us, and we don't have to sit there and pretend like it's not true. We can actually say, no, the more that I get next to Jesus, the more I can see, yes, I'm so far, but yet at the same time, he's also working with me. And it's not just that he's producing that in me, that I can see myself and I can admit myself, but I can admit that it's true about others. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in him in, uh, in the light and in him, there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, or uh, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's saying, if you're someone who says, hey, I know Jesus, I'm in the light. And a, lot of, a lot of people out there are going to say, I know Jesus, but then says, but I can't stand them. I hate that person. John says, it, it doesn't make sense because when you are loved by Jesus and others, it exposes light and reality and you begin to see yourself. And as you begin to look at others, you see, yes, the person who you have enmity for, that you have hatred for, is a sinful and wicked and angry and bitter person who is in a world that you also are an angry and bitter and sinful and wicked person. And that's why whenever Jesus is going to talk about concepts like forgiveness, he's going to tell stories about somebody who had a debt, a debt that was like, you know, a 10 years worth of work and had it just completely forgiven in an instant. And they fall on their face and they begin weeping and crying because they all of a sudden realize that somebody has done something completely that they did not have to do and which was relieve a weight off of them that they could never repay. And then that person sees someone who owes them a year of debt. Not an insignificant thing, but relative to a decade, not the same. And then demands full payment for it. And John is like, that. It, 
It can't make sense for you to have Christ living in you and showing you who you are and then looking out at other people and saying, but that person deserves to pay. Because, yes, maybe they have done terrible, wicked things, but the fact is, is no matter what they've done to you, the fact that you know yourself better and know the nooks and crannies of your heart more means that, yes, maybe you didn't do that thing, but you can probably find that you have, compared to Jesus, much, much, much more debt to pay than has been owed to you. And so you have no choice but to say, I, it doesn't make sense to hold on to this. That's why he says, hey, when you, whoever loves, uh, whoever, or in verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. There's no reason to all of a sudden get in relation with some, relationship with someone and be like, man, I didn't realize that this was going to come here. I didn't realize you are going to hurt me. Or to get involved in a community group, a missional community, a discipleship group, or a relationship with people and be like, I didn't realize people were going to betray me because there's no cause for stumbling. We know it's in them. We know it's in us. We know that we don't get in relationship with people because they make us feel good or because they love us perfectly as Jesus did, but because Jesus loved us perfectly and we cannot hold still the fact that we have to then shovel out that which has been shoveled into us. That love produces in you a, as Jesus said, like a spring of water that just, it just keeps producing and you have to pour it out on others, not because they're worth loving, but because they're not. Because you realized I wasn't loved by Jesus because I was worth loving? Because I'm not. Because verse 11, he says, because whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I've seen this in other people and I've seen this in myself. Where in seasons you're just, you're just so angry. You're so embittered towards them. You obsess over being right, replaying it over and over and over again in your head. And maybe, yeah, if they're not in the room or if you kind of get thinking about something else, but all somebody has to do is mention their name or all you have to do is see them on social media and everything just boils right back up again because you're just stumbling around in darkness. It's completely blinding you to the idea that, that you have life in Jesus and are able to, to absorb, to love, to forgive, because that darkness just keeps you blinded to the fact. A counselor said to my wife and through her said to me, sometimes you can be right or you can be happy. Because sometimes in a relationship, you're going to hold on so hard to, I need to be right. And here's what will happen. Eventually, you will find a way in your own mind to make it the fact, whether you are or not, that you are right. But you will forfeit that relationship. You'll forfeit every relationship in which somebody offends you. You'll forfeit every relationship in which somebody does not hold perfectly to all of the commandments like has not been put on your head, but you've put on theirs. And so we regularly are through the concept, 
in this relationship, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? And of course, that doesn't mean that truth isn't real. Of course, that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't say true things to people. Of course, the scriptures are going to talk about that. But there's also a, a recognition in life that if you are going to continue to hold on to this, that I am right over all things else, then you eventually will be right and alone. Flip over to verse, uh, chapter 3. John picks this idea back up. The book of First John, uh, the Bible Project in their video, I thought did a beautiful just depiction of this, in which they talk about like the book of First John as if John is just taking a few ideas and the few words, love, light, darkness, you know, these kind of key concepts uh, and that he's going to continue to talk about, and he's going to take them from the center and he's going to draw it out, and then he's going to come back towards it, and then he's going to draw it out in a slightly different direction, and then he's going to come back to it, and then a slightly different direction, and then he's going to come back to it, and he's continually circling and meditating. This is, by the way, how often we learn. We will lear learn through repetition, through meditating, through turning something over in several different ways and seeing it not just in one dimension but in three dimensions. And this is what John is doing, which is why when you read it, you're like, yeah, I feel like we're back in the same place. Absolutely, but just a slightly different angle until he continually finds yourself having fully examined the ideas that you've been meditating on for 70 years. And he writes in verse 11, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that as we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here you go. Basic Church 101. Don't murder people. You expect to hear stuff like that when you come, and you now have. In this concept of like, you know, he's pulling... John's pulling on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, if you have anger in your heart, it's the same root as what eventually grows up to be what Cain did, which was he murdered his brother because he felt like God just was blessing him more. He couldn't see the abundance that had been given to him, the relationship that had been given to him, and he could only focus on he had something I need, and so he lets anger grow up and become murder. And he said, maybe you haven't watered the seed fully. Maybe they're still sprouting. Maybe they'll get there before the end of your life. Maybe they never will. But as long as you hold those seeds, you have that capacity in your heart. And he says, hey, there's no murderer that has eternal life. And by the way, when he says that, he's not saying, hey, if you're a murderer, if you've ever murdered someone, that you can never enter into the kingdom of God. Because John, when he talks about eternal life, is not primarily talking about a ticket you punch to go to heaven but he's talking about the quality of a life that is brought to you here and now. That's why he says in John 10, where he t talks about Jesus coming and saying, hey, I have come so that you may have life to the full now. That my kingdom is here, and you can now have life in me that starts this moment. It's not just you pray a prayer, sign a card, punch a ticket, and now wait however long your life is so that you can experience life to the full someday, you experience it now. And he said, hey, somebody who has anger and bitterness growing in their heart that much, they just have no capacity to experience an eternal life of abundance right now. It's, yeah, of course, it's about the idea for that person is just not going to be filled with Christ and therefore, yes, in eternity that'll be a problem. But he said, regardless of that, 
if you're holding on to anger now, you can't experience my life to the full. But if you are able to love one another, then life comes now. Continuing on. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So all this point has been talking about, hey, this is why it just doesn't make sense not to love when you're filled with Christ, but let's actually talk about what does it look like to obsess over, to keep, to stare at this commandment, to keep it as if your life depended on it. It says, hey, it's loving him as he did, where he gave his life up for him, which is great and high and lofty, but then he doesn't just leave it there in the high and lofty, because a lot of you are just maybe not going to have the opportunity to give up your life for another, literally. Maybe you will. But he said, hey, it looks like every single day in which you see your brother or your sister who needs something and you have the capacity to love and give that towards them. And he says, if you close your heart towards that, he said, it's like you close your, your resources. It's like slamming the doors of your guts closed, literally is what the language is saying. It's closing off all feeling. And this is not like if I ever walk by a person who's asking for money, then I am not keeping this commandment fully. However, it is the sense of if there's never a time in which I'm saying, man, I want to open up my resources towards this person, I want to like, be generous towards this person, a lot of times it's going to be, as Paul writes about in Galatians, in the household of faith. As he says, it's your brothers and your sisters. So many times it's going to be coming together and bearing the burdens, the financial and tangible and emotional and relational and physical burdens of one another. And yes, often it's going to spill out to other people too because it can't sit still. It's like an abundant spring of water that just keeps flowing over and over and over again. So you have to pour it out on other people amongst the household of faith and amongst other people. Here's why I love this church. Here's why, I mean, when we're apart from you guys, like, I think about you guys a lot. And probably you're like, yeah, like you think about some of the members who have been here the entire time. You're probably really surprised. You'd be surprised if, like, you heard my wife and I's conversations about, like, we talk about all of you. <laughs> And we think about all of you, and we love all of you because there's so many different ways in which I, we get to see, like, I wish that people got the view of that which we get. And we get to see so many times where people are showing up with meals for one another or laying down their time for childcare for one another because people are tired and they need help. Or... They are giving their resources to kids and their time to kids and are coming alongside them and finding all different sorts of ways to give the world's goods. I get to see that hundreds and hundreds of times over the last six years now. And now a lot of you get to see it because you are the ones doing it. And that's why, man, when I was reading through this all week long, I just continued to think like, man, I just love this body that God has created and that he has loved us and he is producing in us his spirit. And so many of you just 
continue to do this. You continue to love, not just in word and talk, but you love in truth and deed. And I know some of you, are, what's crazy to me is the same people that I just are doing it over and over again are then continuing to wrestle with the fact of like, but am I in Christ? Do I know him? Is my, you know, is this truly been produced in me? And John is writing to you, you can have full confidence. Maybe you feel it right now, maybe you don't. But here's the reality about love. You don't have to feel anything to love. That's why he said, like, don't just love people in the way where you're just like, Man, I feel good thoughts about them, but love them in truth, in deed. Sometimes you can be wishing you didn't have to show up, but yet finding in you just that last bit of energy and showing up, and you have loved your brother. You've loved your sister. It's not dependent on your emotions. It's not dependent on you feeling like you've nailed it. There's some of you even that are just like, man, I... I like you talk about how like I feel like I just like want to love people as Christ loved them and I'm just stressing that I'm not and I'm saying hey that first John is telling you even that desire and that stress that you feel like you're not is actually you guarding and keeping and holding on and staring on to the idea of how do I continue to produce more love within me He goes on in 19 By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, uh, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we have believed in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I mean, that's the whole concept. He's saying, hey, sometimes you feel it. Sometimes you feel like you're just filled with the spirit and God is with you and the wind is at your back. And sometimes you feel condemned by your heart because the fact is, is that you see Jesus and you see your sinfulness and you see how you're still failing, how you think you're failing to love people even though you're still showing up and doing it. And he says, hey, in those times where you feel like, man, yeah, it just doesn't feel like you're filled with the Spirit. It says, here's how you hold on to that confidence, because you're holding on, as it says, to believe in Jesus and to love one another. You're continually resting to believe in Jesus and to love one another. You're holding on as if your life depends on it, onto Jesus, and to love for one another. A few applications, points of applications as we close. First, and these should all be obvious because we've been talking about them now for 30 minutes. Obsess over this. Obsess over how do I love my brother and my sister, not in word and talk, but in deed and truth. Again, I give that to you not as a sense of you aren't doing it. I get to see so many times, I'm just saying to you, continue on. Continue on. You've chosen the better thing. Keep choosing it. Keep holding on to it. Guard it like it could, like you don't want it to get away. And all of a sudden, five years, you realize, ah, I've started to flow all my time and energy towards myself. But keep holding on to it.
Number two, watch content. It's the one thing that continually, as we watch to grow in our heart, a love for others, it's just really easy in the world right now to get angry at people. The whole world is trying to breed anger in you. That's pretty much why news outlets exist today, um, is to make you angry at people. It's not why they exist, but it's why they found that they can continue to grow and get increased profit margins. So I guess in the end of the day, it's not why they exist. And the whole world is trying to increase anger and enmity and contempt with people who you don't even really know. In fact, are not even really people. They're just a cardboard cutout of a person. But yet if you actually talk to a person who you thought that cardboard of the cutout represented, you'd actually find out, no, there's all these other parts of the Imago Dei that's true of their soul. And yes, there's parts of them that are really terrible and horrible, but there's parts of me that are terrible and horrible too, and praise God, we have a way to deal with that. And so let's be people that are watching content, putting it away, finding ways to serve and bless and honor those who you want to hate. It's the truest antidote to getting rid of it is when I want to condemn you, I find a way to honor, serve, or bless you. And even as my heart is tightened, just a small cord of it untightens as I do that. Number three, fact, our feelings are not facts. Your feelings are important. I care about your feelings. They are very important. But they're not always accurate. My kids sometimes say things that they absolutely feel are true, that have no basis in reality. It's pretty much the entirety of talking with Quinn. Um, and John, just like he was a 15-year-old kid who was walking along with Jesus, probably at times had things that he felt that just were completely untrue. But you don't have to convince God that he loves you. He does He's done everything to show that he loves you. You have to regularly convince yourself that he loves you. And in doing that, don't become a slave to law. So much of our life is trying to convince people, if I just do this one more thing, will you love me? If I just do this one more thing to my, in my work, will you give me honor? If I do the one more thing towards my kids, towards my marriage, towards my parents, towards whatever, will you finally give me the love that I've been desiring for my entire life? And God is not looking at you saying, like, I need you to do one more thing, and I'll love you. I do love you. I've done everything to show that you love me, or that I love you. You don't have to convince God to love you. He loves you. And as you convince yourself that he loves you, that just naturally produces in a sense of love for one another. How do you guard and you keep this? You obsess over it in tactical and tangible and strategic ways, and you reflect regularly on the idea that you are so loved that God has given his entire life for you and as he does that, yes, it doesn't always just like, oh, it makes it effortless but it continually provides you that which you need to love others. It also connects us to him. That's what it says it's back at the beginning of in chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, it says, hey as you keep and obsess and, and try to love one another and hold on to Jesus, it, that God perfects his love in you. That over years you don't even realize it's happening, but over time it just continues to grow and mature, and you abide in him. Or I love how the message version translates the word abide. You slowly make your home 
in Jesus. One way that we obsess over this on a weekly basis is through the tangible act of communion. Communion is us holding on to the fact that Jesus has given everything for us. And whether that makes you feel warm and fuzzy this morning, or if your heart feels cold, just the tangible act of remembering that Christ's body has been broken for me. He's dealt with all my sin. He's given me everything so that God now doesn't look at me as an enemy, but looks at me as a beloved son or daughter. He's shed his blood to cleanse me from everything and to give me his pure and spotless righteousness. Whether you feel that's true or not, that's not a fact. The, the things that I said are facts. Your feelings are not facts. And so let's hold on to the facts and stare at the reality that we are loved by taking the body that he broke the night before he was betrayed. And he said to the disciples, take and eat. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I am... Um, I'm just humbled to be a part of the body of believers, Lord, that you have put around and are building this kingdom here in this neighborhood. And they're not uniquely doing it, Lord. You've done so much through so many other churches and so many other communities of believers. But at the same time, you've just given me, I think even as I reflected this week on loving one another, a deep love for these people. But Lord, I don't want to just say that in word and talk. But Lord, I want you to continue to work out in me and in us ability to continue to love each other in deed and truth. Lord, let us not let go of it. Let us put contempt away when we hurt one another. Let us absorb sin. Let us love each other so well that we either change each other's hearts or the other person has to get away from us. Just like you said, the world often can hate those who love them just because it in itself is so powerful. You either have to be changed by it or you have to get away from it. And Lord, I pray for that love to be produced not by our effort, not by our grit, not by us continually snapping our wrists with a rubber band, physically or metaphorically, but be produced by the love that you have loved us first. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.